From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. We welcome you again to Open Line Thursday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. Uh, Jack Williams is away. I'm Tom Price along with our favorite Dominican, Father Brian Milady. How are you, Padre? Okay, getting ready for Holy Week now. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And so you are doing missions. You are up the California coast a little bit, right? Uh, yes, I'm at Madonna del Sasso Parish in Salinas. Right. A beautiful mm-hmm. part of our country, isn't it? Yes, it really is. Uh-huh. Very and, good. Uh, Very good. Let me uh, give out those phone numbers here. So if you have a question for Father Brian, you can give him a call, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Now, if you're listening to us outside of North America, we have a phone number just for you. Dial the U.S. country code. In most countries, that's going to be 1, the number 1, and then 205 271 2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for our response and then text us your first name and your brief question. Message and data rates may apply. Or if you would like, you can send us an email, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put either Father Brian or Thursday in the subject line. And Father, this week uh, you're going to be talking about a very famous phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's right, Tom. Uh, We're about to enter the great week, which begins with Palm Sunday and ends with the resurrection. And one of the difficulties we have today in our catechesis and theology has to do with what's traditionally known as Christ's self-emptying the fancy Latin uh, Greek word for this is his kenosis. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality something to be grasped at, but emptied himself. And that final emptying, of course, occurs on the cross. Some modern theologians have maintained that uh, Jesus didn't exactly go to the cross. It was a regrettable incident that happened in his life that he did not see God in the face from the moment of his conception, which is, of course, what the traditional teaching of the church is. And even if he did, he lost it on the cross. He suffered, according to them, in faith. And he experienced a kind of, well, we use this word a lot today. I'm not sure people really know what it means. An existential angst, anguish. Mm, Yeah on the cross, and he had no idea what God was going to do, make sense of out of this. And the way I like to put it is, uh, many modern theologians think Christ is the most surprised person on earth when he rose from the dead, if in fact he did rise from the dead. Now, this is totally contrary to what our doctrine is. Mm -hmm. Our traditional doctrine is that Christ, unlike any other person with a human nature, because he was a divine person, for his whole life, from the moment of his conception, 
enjoy the vision of God in heaven on the cross. But he, by his own will, kept this from arriving at the lower parts of his nature as human, human, in order that he might suffer and die. In fact, as you know, Jesus says about his passion, no one takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. Well, the big phrase in regard to this teaching has always been the cry from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, on what level can Christ be forsaken? Well, there are five actual possibilities. The first is he ceases to be the second person of the Trinity. That's, that's not possible. The second is that he ceases to have a human nature joined to that person. That's not possible either. The third is that he experiences a kind of sin. That's not possible either. And the fourth is that he suffers in faith, which isn't possible either because Christ did not have faith. You'll know he's the only person in Scripture that's never described as having faith. Hmm. And the reason is because faith is the essence of things unseen and the substance of things to be hoped for. And Christ's soul and a certain part of his soul, the higher part, was already in heaven. So the only forsaking can be of God's external protection. In fact, the dogmatic difficulty of this phrase is resolved if we remember that it's the first verse of a psalm. And depending on what enumeration of the psalm you use, I believe it's 21 or 22, is very far from a cry of existential angst, fear, and hopelessness on the cross. The psalmist is suffering intensely, intensely, intensely. But he uh, preserves, he, he, God removes the protection, but preserves the union. You may remember that all throughout Christ's life, he was protected by his father externally. Today, for example, when the Jews in the gospel passage about Abraham think he's committed uh, blasphemy, they want to stone him. And it says, but he was passed through their midst and walked away in the temple. The same when they try to throw him over the hill. The same actually in King Herod's attempt to kill him. He's always protected because his hour has not yet come. But now God removes that external protection and allows him to be given to the will of his enemies. And in fact, Psalm 21, 22 ends with this great song of vindication and jubilation. My vows I will pay before the Lord in the great assembly. I shall be praised. So you have to read the whole Psalm. Jews were accustomed to recite Psalms, almost like we're accustomed to say the rosary. You have to read the entire psalm to see what's actually doctrinally involved. It's true that Christ experiences an extremely painful death because God withdraws his protection. But he doesn't withdraw the internal union. And that means that Christ always remains in seeing God in the face even when he suffers and dies. In fact, one further point mm -hmm. in the agony in the garden the traditional teaching of the church is, and this is expressed by Pius XI in the Zizekiel on the Sacred Heart, that Christ, because he had the vision of God in heaven, experienced personally every sin 
that had existed or would exist. And, you know, we say we make Jesus suffer in heaven. Well, obviously he can't suffer in heaven, but he suffers through that experience when he was on earth of being able to experience the tragedy of all of our personal individual sins and offer his life for them. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, Christ is has the union with his Father externally withdrawn, but not internally. Internally, the union is preserved. So, he emptied himself into the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, but therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed him the name above every other name. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful teaching. You're listening to Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father, 833-288-3986. We have a question here from Jay, Father, a rather timely question. Why don't Catholics fast from all animal products on the days of abstinence during Lent? Um, because, well, gee, it's not really uh, part of the Catholic religion. That's why. Okay. Uh, um, the, the so-called fast is more a symbol, actually. You remember the whole idea is that um, one meal or two meals, what is it, can't equal a principal meal. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Well, if you live in Italy, where the law was written, a principal meal is pretty principal, right? <laughs> I, I believe the caller might be discussing abstinence, too. Yeah. And we don't abstain from all animal products because it's just the eating of meat itself that is a symbol of our union and, and um, uh, controlling our senses. That's, that's the purpose of it in order that we might love better. It's not a matter of health issues or anything like that. Okay, very good. Appreciate that. Uh, Jay, thank you so much uh, for your email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address. Openline at EWTN.com. Openline at EWTN.com. Be sure that you put either uh, Thursday in the subject line or Father Brian in the subject line so that we can match those up for you. In a moment, we're going to get to Al in Panama City, Florida. Also, Leslie in North Texas. We've got uh, a line open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, it's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN Radio. We're going to get to the phones in just a moment. We'll lead off with Al in Panama City. But first, let me tell you about a wonderful book now available from EWTN Publishing, Answering the Questions of Jesus by Father Andrew Apostoli. In this great book, he reflects on each of the many questions that Jesus asked 
in the Gospels. His insight and wisdom will guide you to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he is really asking of you today. Some of the questions you'll explore, why were you looking for me? Here's another one. What, what do you seek? And one of my favorites, Why Are You Afraid? This is a great book answering the questions of Jesus by Father Andrew Apostoli. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Al in Panama City, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Al. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, how are you guys doing today? Very well, very well. Thank you. Hey, uh, Father Brian, thank you so much for taking my question. I uh, possibly am in a kind of a unique situation, being Roman Catholic and my wife not being. I attend Mass every Sunday and then go to a Southern Baptist service with her. And uh, kind of, uh, I think they call it like their invitation at the beginning when they talk about accepting Christ in your life, mm-hmm. they, uh, he always uh, their pastor always makes a statement that um, Jesus died for the remission of your sins, and um, his blood was shed, and sin cannot be forgiven without the shedding of blood. And um, I w- that always made my ears perk up. I was like, wait a minute, what? And it goes, I looked in Hebrews, and then in Leviticus, and uh, I asked a Catholic priest who just said to me, that is not true. That's the Mosaic Law, not God's Law. And that's all he told me. But I have lunch once a week with this Baptist pastor, and I was just wondering how I can intelligently talk to him about this and to say that, because I was told that that is not Catholic French blood did not and does not have to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Can you help me? Okay. The priest was a little mistaken by what he told you. What the problem is, the passion of Christ. Because, yes, sin does have to be involved the shedding of blood. Remember, Christ's sacrifice of his shedding of his blood was what was looked forward to in the shedding of blood by the animals in the Old Testament. And now has put an end to those sacrifices. No, no more is that true, but it certainly was true up until the time of the Passion, because remember, Christ's Passion fulfills the old law. In fact, there's a phrase in Holy Thursday, um, one of the hymns it's by Thomas Aquinas, he obeys the law's direction even as the old law ends. So the shedding of his blood now, which is the blood beyond all price, remember there's a feast of the precious blood of our Lord, puts an end to all future uh, needs to shed blood. Now our sacrifice is spiritual. When our confession is spiritual. But uh, I would warn you against, uh, I don't think it's a good idea you go to both services. Um, because when you go to a Baptist church, what you're saying, I know why you're doing it. You're doing it to be kind to your wife and because, um, you know, they after all are Christian too. But, you know, when you stand there, you say you basically believe in everything they believe in and we don't. And, uh, for example, um, 
a lot of their, the Protestant churches have great difficulty with the sacraments. And even if they practice a ritual of the Lord's Supper, they don't think it's a sacrifice. And that's why for them, in a sense, you could say the bloodshedding might continue for some, but not for others. But we believe it's a sacrifice, and that sacrifice is one and eternal, and it's what we're celebrating at the Mass. And what was done, remember, in a bloody way on the cross is done in an unbloody way now in the Eucharist. So now it's true what the priest says from that point of view, yes. But it did, did involve and does involve the shedding of blood, but we don't have to do it now because Christ's precious blood is sufficient to resolve that. And it, after all, becomes present on the altar in the form of the transubstantiated body mm -hmm. and blood of Christ, mm -hmm. and we receive the blood of Christ. <laughs> yeah. It's the blood which will be shed, what does it say, for the remission of sins? Yes. Right? Eternal covenant. All right. So you need to make some distinctions about that. And I'm not really sure it's a good idea to debate that because, or even, like I say, even to be present for it. I remember when I was in the seminary in Berserkly, <laughs> um, I did enjoy the music a lot at the Episcopal Eucharist. So I used to go to the beginning to sing some of the hymns and then ah, I'd leave. Okay. Yeah. But I, I don't think today I would do that. Okay. It, it, it's different if it's in the uh, just in the Protestant church. But if it's part of their Eucharist, you basically are saying that you agree with what happens there. So. Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much for your call, Al. Hope that's helpful for you. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Uh, looks like three lines open at the moment. Let's go to uh, Marie now. Is in, uh, She is in San Antonio, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Hello, Marie. What's on your mind today? Um, yes, thank you for taking my call. I, I wanted to know, I know in the beginning God made Adam and then Eve, and they had three sons, and then they took a wife. Where did the wives come from? Oh, they all came from Adam and Eve. Okay. Eve. So, yeah, they all so, came from Adam and Eve. Primogenitor. Okay. So they married sisters? Yes. yes. Oh, my God. Oh, uh, my God. No, okay. that's not the proper reaction to that. Uh, remember, consanguinity, um, that's to say, and also the relationship of brother and sister regarding sexuality, is a primary difficulty because of the closeness of the relationship and also because it has a tendency to bring forth um, physical disease, as was the case in the crowned heads of Europe, who used to so intermarry each other that they produced the hemophiliac condition, for example, in the son of Nicholas II, the Tsarevich. Uh, in the beginning of the human race, the population of the world was such an important thing that that particular restriction was done away with for a while. Once the human race was populated to the extent where you, you could have separate, um, quite far distant relatives, then that would have been put in force again. Also remember there is some tradition, some scientific, uh, I would say it's a theory, 
that we're all related to one woman, really. Mm, <laughs> the wow. DNA or one man. The DNA is one at the beginning for everybody. Uh-huh. So, uh, no, uh, they were the children of Adam and Eve, all of them were in the beginning. Right. Then when they began to have their own children, then the human race became diversified. Yeah. All right. And uh, Marie, thank you so much for your call. Let's go to Leslie in North Texas, listening also on Guadalupe Radio. Leslie, what's on your mind today? Thank you. Thank you. Father Milady. that was a great explanation. I understood that explanation of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, which I've never understood it before now. So yeah. I started thinking, is that how the martyrs, they did not have internal union the way Jesus did, of course, but is there any, what, is that strengthening for the martyrs, that concept? Well, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Uh, first of all, yes, the martyrs did not enjoy the vision of God. They were in heaven yet. Christ is unique. That's why I said that's a unique experience of his. They suffered in faith. Now, sometimes God gave them gifts to help to support them in this, but uh, it would be different for them um, in the sense that what they're doing is they're looking forward to a kingdom that they have not yet in any sense experienced. Christ didn't have to merit heaven. He merited heaven for us, but not for himself. Otherwise, he couldn't have given it away. Also, if Jesus did not enjoy the vision of God, in principle, he'd be like Adam and Eve before the sin, which meant he could have sinned. We don't believe Christ could have sinned. The sinlessness of our Lord is an important doctrine also. But uh, you know, the martyrs is, uh, Christ's uh, forsaking isn't the same as the martyrs who suffered in faith. His suffering is complex. The problem of his suffering in the cross is complex. But it does not involve, in any sense, a lack of union on the higher part of himself. Uh, in his human nature now we're talking about, mm -hmm. in his human intellect, because he's one with God all throughout his whole life in his human intellect. Okay. Hey, Leslie, thank you so much for your call. Appreciate hearing from you. While we're on the subject of suffering, Marcella is watching us on YouTube today, Father. Marcella says, I have read that purgatory is the same suffering as hell. Shouldn't there be a difference in the way souls suffer in one or the other? All right, well, let's say this again. Distinctions are very, very important in theology. <laughs> yes. When I used to teach, uh, I remember one poor guy, he was a Jesuit product, and he took his test. I eventually invested him in his chasuble. He's very brilliant. But he got his test back and said, B plus. And I said, <laughs> look, I didn't want Jesuit rhetoric. I wanted scholastic distinctions. And he says, you and your distinctions. Anyway, look, <laughs> it's the same as hell in the sense that you don't see God yet. But obviously, it's not the same as hell. First of all, because it's not for mortal sin, so it isn't forever. Mm -hmm. And 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 secondly, um, it's only for the temporal punishment due to sin. And the person has already been judged worthy of heaven. So there's a certain sense in which you can look on it as being the same as hell because you don't yet see God. But it's not a, it's a temporary condition. People in hell don't have a temporary condition. We often say that Christ descended into hell, too, which was the limbo of the just. Mm -hmm. 
Now, obviously, they're not going to go to hell forever. Yeah. But it's the sense that they don't yet see God, but they will when our Lord rises from the dead. And there's a wonderful uh, thing about him evangelizing the limo of the just for three days as he did the rest of the world for three years. All right. Appreciate that. Marcella, thanks for watching us today on YouTube. In a moment, we're going to go to uh, John in Cincinnati, Dee Dee in Urbana, Illinois. A couple of lines open for you for Open Line Thursday with Father Brian, 833-288-EWTN. Call now. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, still time for you to get a line in to Father Brian Milady here on Open Line Thursday on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Going now to John in Cincinnati, home of the finest ice cream on the planet. John, what's on your mind today? Yeah, thank you, sir. Uh, just wondering, Father, uh, after uh, Christ's first judgment, uh, where do our souls go? Okay. I don't didn't get it. What okay, was, yeah. What do our souls do after our first judgment? What 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 happens there? Oh, yeah. Well, you become worthy of heaven or hell, and then purgatory is for those who still have to work out certain temporal punishment due to sin. What happens in the second judgment is that that particular personal experience of reward or punishment is publicly proclaimed to the entire assembled creation. Mm. But it's already happened at your death, where, where you are, are. Okay. Yeah. Very good. John, thanks so much for your call. Didi is in Urbana, Illinois. Hey, Didi, what's on your mind today? Hi. Um, I was told by a very devout Catholic, a very smart Catholic, that Adam and Eve was just a totally made-up story. And I was shocked. Have you ever heard that? Or, I mean, maybe it is, but... All right, well, let's let's tell you what John Paul II says about this. Um, John Paul II calls Genesis chapter 1 and 2 theological prehistory. Uh, he calls it a myth, but then he goes through 12 definitions of myth and denies them all. It's not just a made-up story, and it's not just a fable. What it is, is a primitive way of expressing philosophical truth. In other, so it's real. Philosophical truth is real. The truth about man in relationship to God and to each other. Um, the details are not, you know, it isn't like a history would be where you're trying to describe this person went to the parliament on this day or the Congress on this day and did this and this and this and this. The details have to do with what the human race is, what the human soul is, what the human body is, what our relationship to the creator is. And Genesis 1 talks about this in an objective way. And in fact, John Paul II says it was composed later than Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is the really primitive way of expressing this, and it includes the subjective reaction of the people to their own creation. So it isn't exactly correct to say it's a made-up story, as though it was a fable. Mm. 
in, uh, something like Walt Disney or something like right, that. Right, right, right. What is correct to say is that what they're doing is using a particular way of expressing history to teach the truth of philosophy before people had things like accident, substance, and essence, and existence, and all these humongous terms we use now. So it is real. It is historical in the sense that reality, history is reality, but it's not chronological. In other words, the atom of Genesis 1 and 2 is us. And if you look at the catechism, it says all men are as one person in Adam. Okay. Appreciate your call, Dee Dee. Hope that's helpful for you. It is an open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. Still time to get your call in at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Father, here is an email we received from Fran. My son read that suicide was not considered to be a sin before the 16th century, but rather a, quote, noble option. Is that true? Oh, I wouldn't know about where he read that. And the 16th century, I think, would probably be not correct. Uh, certainly, <clears throat> people like the Romans thought it was a noble option. Okay. Because they used to do it all the time. Yeah. The, fam- the famous one is Seneca when, and Nero, which is very well portrayed in the movie Quo Vadis, Yes. Where he sends Nero this letter and tells him, thank God I won't have to listen to your torpid poetry <laughs> Love that. Uh, please spare the human race your poetry. And Nero goes absolutely out, out of his mind. Love it. Yeah. But, um, no, the Christian church always could have considered suicide to be a sin. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, very good. Fran, thanks so much for your email. Let's go to Brian now in Cincinnati, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Brian, what's on your mind today? Hi, Father. Um Along that same conversation regarding the origin of the human race, um, I thought in my research anyway that polygenism wasn't the only acceptable uh, theory, or excuse me, monogenism, as you suggest, was the only acceptable theory that you can have as a Catholic, that polygenism is is accepted as well to believe in. Like, for example, uh, there were other humanoids that didn't have intellect and will on the planet, but that Adam and Eve's children would have had intellect and will and therefore could possibly have mated with other people on the planet that didn't have intellect and will and then to propagate the species versus suggesting that everybody originated biologically from Adam and Eve. Okay. Well, all I can tell you is that Pius Twelfth in Humani Janus stated that the human race had to take its origin from two historical people that really existed. Now, I realize that that flies in the face of a lot of present-day scientific theory, but as you notice, when it comes to COVID, we've had a lot of trouble with theories. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They're supposedly scientific. Mm -hmm. Um, No one really knows, I don't think. It's and I'm not sure there's there's as you know they used to say about Darwinianism 
that nobody's ever found the missing link. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. I'm not an expert in that. I'm not sure the scriptures mean to be an expert in that. But what they mean to say is even if there were humanoid creatures, that Adam and Eve were not, they had to be the result of having their soul directly created by God. And of course, the body represents the soul in man. So this divine spark, matter can't generate. So it has to be the result of a direct creation on the part of God. And the same would be true of their children who would inherit that nature. And I, I, I have no understanding of who decided on the theory that if there were humanoid creatures, that man would mate with them or something like that. Mm. Uh, why would they say that? There's no evidence of it as far as I know. And uh, I could be wrong about that, but because um, I'm not, as I say, a scientist. But uh, I've become more and more distrustful of science in the last two years mm. than, than I ever was before. Appreciate your call, Brian. It's uh, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. Do have time enough for a couple of more calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Father, we just got a text from Scott who says, I left the Catholic Church and became an atheist, but now I am reading Aquinas' Aquinas's five ways. So, Father, which of the five ways do you think is the strongest? And can you recommend any other stronger arguments that will bring me back to the faith? Father? Uh, uh, I can't, um, because those five ways pretty much cover all the different kinds of causality. But uh, I would say that the idea of an ordered universe, which of course is the final cause proof, is probably the strongest. And um, interestingly enough, as I was speaking to the previous caller about science, I read a, a very good, several very good books by a Lutheran, interestingly enough, from Baylor, who's a very great defender of Catholicism strangely, but he maintains that the only part of our earth where science has made such huge progress, because remember the the um, Asians and stuff took a lot of their scientific principles from Europe and America, is that which believes in an ordered creator with a mind, an intellect. And that would be the Judeo-Christian tradition. No other religion believes in that. And the fact that the universe is ordered by this ordering mind, who's also up to a certain point benevolent, I would say is all benevolent, but some people wouldn't necessarily think that, is the origin for our ideas about science. So uh, I um, believe that's the strongest argument, the final cause what the purpose is. If there is a purpose, and there seems to be some purpose from examining all the different levels of creation. Now, by the way, also, when we talk about Genesis, you know, no serious Catholic scholar, to my knowledge, I've always said this, has ever maintained that the universe was created in seven calendar days. For one thing, the sun wasn't created until the fourth day, so it couldn't be a calendar day. So what is the author saying there? He's saying that the week is a basic unit of time, and then you have all the different uh, species that inhabit time and space, 
and that all those are the result of a continuous act of thought and benevolence on the part of the ordering creator. And of course, if you follow Aquinas' logic through uh, in the rest of the Summa, that can only be to return to God from which it came, and that can only be fulfilled in the human being because we have an intellect and we can see God in heaven at the end of our lives. All right. Scott, uh, thank you so much for your text. Appreciate hearing from you here on EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. I'll give you that phone number one more time. There is time to get uh, maybe one or two more calls in here at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. This week on Mother Angelica's Answering the Call, Mother Angelica's topics include the Stations of the Cross, Having Compassion, How Do I Know If Something Comes from the Holy Spirit, Being Badgered by Atheists, and Loving Sinners. Always a fascinating show. Mother Angelica answering the call, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Sunday afternoon, right here on EWTN Radio. Let's go to Ted now in Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hello, Ted. What's on your mind today? Hi, guys. Thanks for your show. Uh, Father, I was wondering if Mary contributed anything materially or genetically to Jesus' humanity? And then there's a follow-up with that if, once I hear the answer. Of course she did. She contributed the flesh. So that's material, right? Yeah. So the follow-up would be, in the Eucharist, if we're consuming Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity, it's lineage of Mary as well that we may be consuming. Uh Yes, because Ave Verum Corpus, Hail True Body, and I think, I think it talks about the fact that the body itself comes from Mary's body. That's why she's so close to it, um, to him. And, uh, um, and being the mother of God, is uh, there's no other human being like that. Remember, Mary's not a goddess, obviously, but she is blessed among women. And uh, so, because from her flesh, Christ takes flesh. There was an ancient heresy, and it was uh, represented in some icons that were condemned, where the angel is carrying Jesus already formed down to put it in Mary's body. This was called the Valentinian heresy, Hmm. and it basically held that Christ passed through Mary like water through a channel, because some early Christians thought it was too too, too uh, destructive and too ordinary and too fleshly to say that he took flesh from Mary. No, he did. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. All right. So, Ted, uh, thank you so much for your call. Let's go to Katie now in Idaho, listening on the EWTN app. Hey, Katie, what's on your mind today? Thank you so much for uh, taking my call. Um, I have a question. Um, I go to both the traditional Latin Mass and the Novus Ordo, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of people at the Latin Mass keep telling me that the you know a lot of people that go to the um, the Novus Ordo, Ordo. I think I'm saying that wrong, uh, but that there's there's just a lack of reverence there, and. They say that the lack of reverence is due to the way they dress, because they dress, like, down. You know, they don't dress up uh, at all. It's more of, like, street clothes. And the fact that there's a lot of talking before the Mass even starts, 
um, when they should be praying and that they are receiving in the hand and it's just that, you know, there's just no reverence there. So your, your question then, Katie? So what is reverence? Is reverence these things? Is it dressing a certain way? Is reverence... um, Uh, I I would say that reverence involves being aware that something supernatural and mystical is going on there that far surpasses our everyday experience. Uh, Scott Hahn wrote a book uh, which reflected a famous Christian tradition. He isn't the first person to think of it that um, it's heaven on earth begun. Now, there are various ways to represent that. As someone who spans the gap between the former liturgy and the present one, I would have to say that the former liturgy communicated reverence partially by its total silence. It was only in the late, in the 60s, during the council, the permission was given to say the Mass out loud. But when I was a boy in the 50s, the only practical words, even the words of institution, almost nothing was said out loud except Novus Quoque Peccatoribus and others. So it was all silence, which was had its own beauty to it. Mm. Um, but I personally prefer the present liturgy, but the present liturgy got off the rails at some point along the line where the options were all taken. And a lot of the things that should communicate reverence, for example, you talked about talking before mass begins. Well, some places do that and I consider it horrible, but other places don't because they realize what's going on. Um, Also, I particularly appreciate the new lectionary and the readings being said facing the people, because as you know, in the former liturgy, the readings were said at the altar, then reread normally before the homilist gave the homily. And uh, there are other things about it. Now, the thing I find most difficult about the present liturgy are the offertory prayers, which I think could have been made, where the sacrifice could have been made clearer. And... Um, also, you know, it isn't necessary to face the people, uh, even in the present liturgy. In fact, the missal, original missal, is written in such a way as to presume that during the liturgy of the Eucharist, you do not face the people. You do during the liturgy of the Word. Mm. So there are many things that you could debate about this. People have been debating about it for a long, long time. Uh, my difficulty is when I'm told as I have been recently, that the Mass I've been saying for 50 years is inferior to what they do. And, I, you know, I, as I say, I attended the former liturgy. I was used to serve Mass for it. I only attended my first Mass where English was used in the liturgy when I was 18 years old. And I find virtues and difficulties in both, and so did Pope Benedict. That's one of the reasons he encouraged both because he felt they both had strengths and both had weaknesses, and he was hoping that they'd come together with the strengths and to get rid of the weaknesses. So, unfortunately, that is a dream that has not yet been fulfilled. But I don't think the solution is just to return to the former liturgy. I'm what they call a person who thinks with Benedict 
of the reform of the reform. Uh, the reform liturgy had many good things about it, but there are many silly things that have creeped into it. Obviously, nobody says you could talk in church before Mass is said. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you don't have to go to communion in the hand. Uh, all these things, um, and those things certainly could, and some of them should perhaps be modified or at least explained better as to what the purpose of them is. Sure. Appreciate your call there, Katie. Let's go to Scott now, just outside of uh, St. Louis in Union, Missouri, a first-time caller listening on Covenant Radio. Hey, Scott, what's on your mind today, sir? I'm aware that there's different levels in hell, but I was wondering if there are different levels in purgatory. Okay. All you got to do is read Dante. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Dante's Purgatory. Dante's Purgatory is a mountain with seven cornices. Yeah. And on each of the cornices, you atone for one of the seven capital sins. And the capital sins go from the worst to the least, I guess you could say the... Least worst. Least worst, yes. (laughs) You go up. And as you ascend the mountain, you would divest yourself of one of the capital sins. And uh, then you go to heaven. Heaven's also a hierarchy. It's not a democracy. I'm sorry. There are levels in heaven, too all based on how much you love God on earth. So, yeah, hell is a lowerarchy, heaven's a hierarchy, and in between you have purgatory, where you have the different evaluations about how difficult the sins are, basically the temporal punishment due to sin is, and how severe it is, in uh, getting yourself ready to experience the heights of heaven. All right. Scott, thanks so much for your call. Uh, Barron sent us an email. People say that when you go through a traumatic event, you need time to grieve and heal. Do Catholics believe Jesus can heal immediately or that this healing time is necessary? Well, I mean, Jesus can heal you from your grief immediately, but why would he want to do that? Yeah. Um, Unless you're becoming depressed by it or something like that. Okay. Grieving for a loved one loss is a normal and natural thing. It's not a sickness, for sure. No. Christ heals from sickness and things like that. And, uh, there's a famous uh, discussion in St. Augustine where he talks about people who say that um, you shouldn't uh, uh, weep over your loved one's death because you know they're in heaven. And he says, well... Yeah, okay, you know they're in heaven, but they're still not with you. And it's a normal and natural thing to weep for the dead, especially when they've been close to you. Sure. And, and you don't see them here anymore. So, uh, no, it's. Um, uh, I think it's very stoical to think that uh, you shouldn't grieve or then we should. It's like a sickness you need to be healed from. Uh, it's not. Okay. Alan has a question here via email. Do Jews and Christians have the same God? Well, I don't know if I can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> we do and we don't. I mean, um, again, distinctions are important. Mm. Obviously, the Jews now would not affirm the Trinity. Right. So in that sense, we could say we do not have the same God. But remember, Israel is not, I mean, it's it lost its religious basis when the most important institution in Israel was destroyed 
and then that was the temple. Mm-hmm. So the rabbis got together at Jamnia and tried to salvage part of their religion. But without the sacrifices in the temple, and, and uh, I know there's a, a cell in Israel that wants to return to rebuilding the temple and doing the animal sacrifice. Mm. And frankly, I think that's ridiculous in yeah. this day and age. Sure. But, um, but I'm not Jewish, so, I, you know. But uh, no, um, before the sin, obviously we had the same God. Even though we didn't exist yet because all of the Old Testament is preparing for the revelation of Jesus. Now, there are hidden and very, um, uh, what would you say, veiled references to the Trinity in the Old Testament. The most important being the days of creation. Because you'll notice it says, God said, blah, 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 and it was good. Mm -hmm. Well, when St. Augustine got a hold of that, he said, God is the Father, his speech is the word, and it was good is the Holy Spirit's action of love, approving it. Hmm. And that's present in everything in creation. So there are veiled references to the Trinity there. But the whole idea of monotheism was so strong in the Jews that they couldn't understand. And many Christians would begin. That's why they had all those councils to try to define in the creeds what we believed. They couldn't understand how there could be one God and three divine persons. Hmm. Very very, very difficult for them. All right. Well, uh, we don't have enough time to get to Mary, who had a great question out of uh, uh, Massachusetts, but let me just ask that question, Father. Why does my priest kiss feet on Holy Thursday? All right, well, that isn't required, but I believe our Lord did that. So he wants to show uh, his service. Okay. All right, very good. Hey, Father, uh, Milady, could you please leave us with your blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Father, we hope that you have a a wonderful Holy Week straight ahead. Will you be with us on uh, next Thursday or not? Oh, no, I'm taking my priestly day off. Okay, very good. I I will be in spirit. I'll be in Nashville at the Sisters celebrating the Triduum. Very good. We look forward to our next visit. Don't forget tomorrow at the same time, Colin Donovan asking, answering those theological questions for you. On behalf of our great team here, I'm Tom Price, along with Father Brian Milady. See you next time here on EWTN's Open Line Thursday. God bless. Yeah.